0: So we do know that about 95% of dogs, sooner or later, are going to get their lymphoma back, even if CHOP worked very, very well the first time. So about 5% of dogs, you treat them once, and they go on and die of old age five years later, and we wish it was more than that. But 95% of the time, it's not.
1: Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Here's your host, James Jacobson.
2: Hello, friend. Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers. Lymphoma is one of the most common types of dog cancer. And because of that, researchers have spent a lot of time and energy and money looking for different solutions to treat lymphoma. Recently, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States, has given full approval, not just conditional approval, but full approval to a drug called Tanovia. We are joined today by Dr. Doug Tham. He is from Colorado State and he has been involved in Tenovia since it was just a drug candidate in the human space. And it's a really interesting journey of how a drug comes to be and made available to us dog lovers. Stick around because this is a slightly longer podcast than normal because we get into some of Doug's backstory, which I think you'll find fascinating in terms of understanding the people behind the drugs that can benefit our dogs. Dr. Doug Tham, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks a lot for having me. So you have been involved with Tanovia for a while, right? Yeah, since probably
0: about uh, 2006 in some form or another. And what was that early involvement? That's a great question. So we started out looking at what now is called Tenovia, it was called something else at the time, as a potential human cancer therapeutic Mm. in collaboration with a human drug company that many folks these days have heard of called uh, Gilead Sciences. Mm -hmm. And Gilead has uh, sort of Uh, become a a more commonly heard name these days because they're mostly known for making antiviral drugs, one of which happens to be a COVID medication called remdesivir. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, way back when, mid-2000s or so, they sort of had a drug or a molecule that was very interesting that sort of came out of some of the work that they were doing with drugs for viruses that looked like it might actually be a very, very useful cancer drug. But one of the really interesting and and problematic things about this drug for Gilead was that it was a drug that fell apart in blood from rodents. So if you gave it to a mouse or you gave it to a rat, it would just kind of spontaneously disintegrate as soon as it got into the bloodstream. Hmm. And what that meant is that they really couldn't figure out how well the drug worked in any of the standard sort of rat or mouse lymphoma models that are commonly used to answer this question before moving into studies with people. turned out that the guy who was doing a lot of the um, sort of animal studies with this drug at Gilead, a guy named Dan Tumas, is a veterinary pathologist. And he said, well, wait, dogs get lymphoma. Why don't we find somebody who treats dog lymphoma and see if they could try this drug and and see how it works and those kinds of things. And so Dan reached out to me and my colleague, David Vale, who uh, is at University of Wisconsin, and he was here at the time, and said, uh, hey, is this something you'd be interested in? And and this is kind of what we do is look at new ways to treat cancer in dogs and cats to help dogs and maybe to help people too. So this was right up our alley. And we said, sure, we'd be happy to. And then over the course of the next few years, we ended up treating probably about 70, 70 dogs or so with, again, what's now called Tenovia. And we looked at a bunch of different ways to give it. So, should we give it once a week? Should we give it every other week? Should we give it every three weeks? What different doses should we try, et cetera? But really, back then, all of this was trying to figure out A, you know, is there enough here that it's worth trying in people? Mm-hmm. And what's the best way to give it? So how frequently should we give it, et cetera, et cetera? And at the end of this, we all said, yep, here we go. Looks like it works pretty well. Um, Try it once every three weeks. And so they said, hey, that's great. Thanks a lot. They went ahead and started actually some small studies in humans. And then for whatever reason, not too far into it, they basically said, eh, I don't think we're going to keep doing this in people. And basically put the drug on the shelf. And there it sat for several years until a guy actually who is here at Colorado State University named Terry Opkenorth decided to form a company to specifically look for cancer drugs that didn't make it in, on the human side for whatever reason and see if they could kind of repurpose them into dog drugs. And you know, when I was talking with with Terry about this, obviously one of the first drugs that I thought would be really great to try and bring in would be, again, this drug that's now Tenovia, since we had done all this work with it, we knew how to give it, we knew it worked, they knew how to make it, they'd done all the sort of preliminary testing in normal animals that was necessary. And they were never going to do anything with it. So it seemed like a perfect opportunity for us to sort of take this back and see if we could actually turn it into something that would be useful for treating dogs with cancer.
2: Wow, that is a fascinating genesis story. And uh, we don't often get to hear the backstory of how a uh, drug comes to market. So that's really interesting. I, it, yeah, it right. Genders a lot of questions. So let me ask those first before we get into Tenovia. And the first one is, wow, you were having promising results in these 70 dogs. Why did the human drug company say, no, let's not do this with humans? So, you
0: know, that's the one piece of information that we don't know the answer to. So It's bad. Yeah. Yeah, When they gave us Tenovia back, they basically said, here's everything we've ever done with Tenovia from day one until it went into the first person. And you guys don't need to know about that. (laughs) So that's the only set of information that we don't have about this drug.
2: Wow. Because we so often hear and we talk about it on this show that, you know, if you can do it in dogs, you can do it in people, which is, I guess, what Gilead was hoping for. Mm-hmm. But we'll assume only by the silence that it didn't quite work out that
0: way. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities. It's possible they went after the wrong kind of cancer. Mm-hmm. It's possible that uh, the way they were choosing to give it wasn't the best way to give it. I mean, there's a million different possibilities, but. The honest answer is we we don't know. And I don't automatically assume it was something bad. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, they said, eh. I mean, one of the things that you do need to think about is when you're dealing with a company that's this giant, Mm -hmm. they have so many different things that they can put their money toward that. It doesn't take that much for them to say, all right, I think we're just going to move on right. to something different because there's so many choices with a big company like
2: that. It's all part of the R&D
0: decision-making
2: process. And are we yeah. an antiviral company or, or are we a cancer therapeutic company? Okay, so let's talk about Tenovia for dogs. It's intended for dogs with lymphoma. Correct. And it was officially approved by the FDA last uh, last year or sometime.
0: Yeah, it got full approval sort of in the early fall last year, Mm -hmm. and it got conditional approval about four and a half years before that.
2: Okay, so it's totally available now. It is available for use
0: by oncology vets or general practice vets? So technically, it's not possible to restrict the sale of a drug like this only to somebody with certain letters after their (laughs) name. So the drug's not being aggressively marketed to non-specialists. But if a non-specialist called up and wanted to order it, they could certainly get it. A more practical issue with its use by non-specialists is this is uh, what we call an injectable cytotoxic agent, mm-hmm. so it needs to be handled in very very special ways, just like all the other chemotherapy drugs that are used in dogs. And you know, sadly, most general practitioners are not equipped to handle these kinds of drugs safely. Yeah, there's a lot
2: of protective measures. So it is a chemo agent injectable. Yeah, sure is. And so talking a little bit about when it is used, you said it's used in lymphoma, and obviously most people, you know, the the standard of care for lymphoma is CHOP protocol. Mm -hmm. And you said with your colleague who's now at Wisconsin, which is where CHOP, it's a very small world for veterinary oncology, isn't it? Yeah. So when would you not use CHOP in favor of tenovia?
0: Yeah, great question. So... Just a slight bit of background. So Tenovia is given as a, as a pretty quick infusion, so a half-hour infusion once every three weeks. So not a lot of treatments. It's not a lot of visits back and forth. So that's sort of the, what, the, what the treatments look like. And generally, if things go well, we plan to do five of those treatments and then stop. So if you look head-to-head and compare studies that have been done looking at a whole bunch of different CHOP-based protocols, whether they're from University of Wisconsin or whether they're from somewhere else, and compare those to the, the studies that have been done with Tenovia, CHOP is better. So that's, that's very clear. Can you quantify that? Sure. So in previously untreated dogs, we see Tenovia cause at least partial improvement in about 70% of dogs. Mm-hmm. That number is about 90% with CHOP. Okay. And the average amount of time that improvement lasts with CHOP is in the order of seven to nine months. Mm -hmm. It's in the order of four to six months with Tenovia. So, yeah, really just not quite as good. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite comparable to if you take just one drug out of the CHOP protocol, a drug called doxorubicin or adriamycin, mm-hmm. which is also given as a quick injection once every three weeks, but it's about the same as as doxorubicin as far as how well it works. Okay. So then the question becomes, you know, really under what circumstances would we use it as the first thing to try in a dog with lymphoma? I think I'll get back to that in a second and say, all right, well, If I don't use it as the first thing to try, when do I use it? Honestly, the situation in which it seems to be the most useful is as the second thing to try. So we do know that about 95% of dogs sooner or later are going to get their lymphoma back, Mm -hmm. even if CHOP worked very, very well the first time. So... About 5% of dogs, you treat them once and they go on and die of old age five years later. And we wish it was more than that. Yeah. But 95% of the time, it's not. And that's when we're starting to look for other things that we can try. And really, if you look at the all the different things that have been looked at, and there's probably a couple dozen different individual drugs and protocols that have been looked at, really, Tinovia looks to be just about the best thing That we know about for that specific situation so chops failed we're rolling on to something else there's a whole library of different things that we could consider tenovia seems to be very high on the list based on the number of dogs it works in and how long it works for in that that what we call the relapsed setting so that's certainly one situation where we think it has a very very you know high likelihood of being beneficial
2: and then the other one when would you use it Primary
0: instead of CHOP. And then back to the first question. So are there circumstances where we you would use it as a first line treatment? Um yeah. So this is a little bit sort of contingent on where in the country somebody is practicing or getting treatment. Because there's we, for example, here in Colorado draw from a huge, huge, huge geographic area. So we have folks who come from five hours away one way to get treatment for their dog with lymphoma. And they might have to do that. 16 times if you're doing a conventional CHOP treatment. Uh, We have other folks who, for one reason or another, say, you know, I just can't take off work 16 times to come up and get treated, you know, with CHOP. Is there something that we could do that might still be be really beneficial, but just doesn't require the same number of visits? Mm -hmm. And there's a, a protocol that we've looked at that actually includes Tenovia, which is a protocol that alternates it. With doxorubicin, so as I said previously, you know the tenovia and doxorubicin are about the same as far as how well they work, but they work in very different ways. They're only given once every three weeks. So what we said was, all right, well, what happens if we give three tenovias and three doxorubicins, alternating them, just once every three weeks? So it's a grand total of six visits. It's not a lot of frequent visits every week or every other week. Wonder what we would get if we did that. And in the initial study that we did looking at that combination, it really looks like those dogs did just about as well as dogs that got CHOP. So pretty, pretty encouraging information. So the average amount of time they did well for was something in the neighborhood of about nine months, which is again, right in that seven to nine month range, which is what we expect to see with CHOP. So that was super encouraging. There is a confirmatory study that's where all the patients have been enrolled and they're just kind of waiting for the information to roll in to see if basically that those encouraging numbers hold up if we do it again. And so we're waiting to see about that. But so that's the one situation where we do talk about using it sort of in that what we call first line setting. Hey, love my dog, but I just can't make it in for weekly treatments. You know, what else you got?
2: (laughs) So the advantage of using it when you were using it as part of CHOP in replacement or going back and forth between doxorubicin and Tenovia, why would you do that versus stick with doxorubicin?
0: Oh, because it looks like if you alternate them, it's only one extra treatment, but the outcome is considerably better than if you use either individual drug alone. Got it. So that's the logic there. So I will say there's one other thing that's currently being looked at, which is well, we know that chop gets you X, we know that tenovia gets you Y. What happens if we put them together? Mm. So, what happens if we stick tenovia into a chop protocol? And that's actually a study that's currently ongoing. I think there's just a couple of dogs nationwide that need to be recruited for that study. Before we can sit back and kind of just let things let things cook a little bit and then take a look and see how those dogs did, so that's a work in progress. that's really interesting, and
2: it also yeah. poses an opportunity for listeners. If there's someone who has a dog with lymphoma and if they're interested in possibly being enrolled in that, that's something they could
0: do. yeah, so if they're at uh near Colorado, if they're near Wisconsin, if they're near Oregon State and Corvallis, mm-hmm. I think those are the three sites that are that are recruiting cases
2: okay. And we'll put links to all of those in today's show notes. Yeah. So there's another drug out there that I think is conditionally approved as an alternative to CHOP or, or that sort of is competitive. It's an oral drug at Laverdia. Mm-hmm. Talk about the differences between
0: Laverdia and Tanova. Sure. So as you mentioned, Laverdia is an oral medication. It doesn't really fall into the class of drugs that we would call a conventional cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. So... This would kind of fall into the class of drugs that would be called a targeted agent. Mm -hmm. And it really works by an incredibly cool mechanism. So it interferes with the sort of uh, movement of different proteins around inside cells. And to keep it simple, it seems like cancer cells have figured out how to keep certain proteins out of the important center of the cell, the nucleus, that otherwise would kill them. So this little pump that sits on the surface of the nucleus keeps these proteins out. If you poison that pump with this drug, those proteins go into the nucleus of the cancer cell and tell it to stop dividing or to die. So these these proteins are called tumor suppressor proteins. And if you can redirect them so they go into the nucleus, which is kind of the brain or the center of the cell, you can actually tell that cell to to stop dividing or or to destruct, which is really, really cool. And it seems like cancer cells have a lot more of this pump than normal cells do, which is where you get this potential advantage or, or selective effect on cancer cells. So super, super cool mechanism of action. This class of drug, a drug very much like this, is actually approved for the treatment of a related blood cancer called multiple myeloma in people. Mm-hmm. So really, really neat. Um, I guess the other big difference is, and I have to be kind of frank here. Laverdia doesn't work very well in lymphoma. Again, so if you look at all the Tenovia data put together, it looks like about 70% of dogs or so will benefit from Tenovia. The average duration of that benefit, if you take everybody and put them together, is probably in the neighborhood of about 120 days. About 35% of dogs seem to benefit from Laverdia, and the average duration of benefit is about three weeks.
2: Mm. Okay.
0: So again, mega cool drug. I honestly think that we need to do a lot more work trying to figure out the best way to use it. So maybe it's not using it by itself. Maybe it's mixing it up with some other drugs. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's using it after chemotherapy to see if we can sort of maintain that remission for a longer period of time rather than trying to use it to treat big tumors. Maybe it'll actually be better as a drug for some other kind of cancer, not lymphoma. So a lot of work to be done. Like I said, super cool drug. Really, really looking forward to figuring out the best way to use that drug, but as a single agent in dogs with big lymphoma, despite the fact that that's kind of what it's approved for, really the data that's been published is not, is not that impressive. Okay.
2: Let's talk about tenovia again in terms of it being used for things other than lymphoma. Yeah.
0: So up until very recently, that was not something that we as oncologists were allowed to do Because of the conditional licensure that the drug was granted by the FDA. So when you have a drug that is conditionally licensed, you are obligated to use it only according to the label. So that's the disease process that you're treating, the species that you're using it in, the dose that you're giving, how frequently you're giving that dose. If you use it in a way that is not according to what's written on the label when it's only conditionally approved, that's a violation of federal law. So yeah, up until recently, we really couldn't talk about other cancer types where Tenovia might be useful, but now we can't since it's now has complete or full approval. Mm -hmm. And again, veterinarians have basically very wide latitude to use fully approved drugs in an off-label fashion. So some of the studies that we've done in conditions other than lymphoma include, well, there's cutaneous lymphoma, which is really just another variety of lymphoma, but it looks like there's some activity there. But we've also actually looked at it in in quite a few dogs with various kinds of what are called lymphoid leukemias. So these are blood cancers that start from cells that are a lot like lymphoma cells, but instead of making the lymph nodes large, these cells actually float around in the blood. So that's kind of the definition of a leukemia. And then we've used it for, again, another cancer type that I mentioned previously called multiple myeloma, mm-hmm. which, again, is another blood cancer that often can affect the bones in dogs. So especially in multiple myeloma, this actually looks like a drug that can work quite well. So there's one study that, that we did quite a while ago, I think it, maybe it was published in 2014, that looked at a small number of dogs, like a dozen or so dogs with multiple myeloma that were treated with tenovia. And almost all of them got better. There were a couple of dogs who got way, way, way better and stayed better for years and ended up dying of unrelated causes with no trace of multiple myeloma in their bodies. Hmm. So yeah, a real potentially interesting tool in our toolbox for multiple myeloma as well. So there are some other oral medications that we know actually can work fairly well for that disease. But in almost every single case, just like lymphoma, eventually they're gonna stop working. And then we are looking for other things that we can try. And boy, you know, based on that little small study that we published, I'd certainly put tenovia high up on the list. We have a follow-up study that has been done. So about another twenty or so dogs that were treated all over the country with tenovia with multiple myeloma. And we're kind of working our way through that information so that we can summarize it and and get that written up as well. But You know, after looking at the first half a dozen cases or so, it's looking about the same as what we saw previously. So I don't think that was a fluke. Mm -hmm. I do think this is going to be a drug that can benefit a lot of dogs with multiple myeloma too. So some of the questions that we do tend to get are, um, well, what about there's 200 other kinds of cancer that (laughs) dogs get? Yes. What about all those other kinds of cancer? You know, could we use this drug for those? And the answer is it doesn't look like it. And here's the reason. So the whole idea behind the way Tanovia was designed was so that we could give a relatively non-toxic, what's called a pro-drug. So kind of like a, yeah, I mean, I don't know a better word to say. So a pro-drug that's actually given injectably, it floats around and then it gets turned into a very active and highly toxic molecule only in the cells you want it to do that.
2: So this is sort of, you were describing the method of action of LaVertia and how cool it is. Right. So yours for Tenovia is it's, pro. I never heard that term. I like that. So it means it's sort of... Hey,
0: Yeah. So it's like a precursor drug.
2: Okay. And then it gets activated or actuated when it encounters cancer.
0: Yeah. But the only cancers that seem to have the little enzymes that are necessary to turn this precursor drug into this highly toxic drug are lymphocytes, which are the white blood cells that turn into lymphoma. So most of the other cells in the body don't have the machinery that's necessary to do this conversion, which is... So is it
2: an enzyme that is just in these lymphocytes?
0: Yeah, it's two different enzymes that are in lymphocytes that most other cells don't have, which actually make it so that this drug gets into lymphocytes and it gets turned into our cancer killer. So because this is really the only kind of cell... And it's related cell that makes multiple myeloma that, that tends to have this machinery. These are really the only tumor types where it's likely to be useful. So we have looked in a Petri dish at some other blood cancers. So we've looked at, again, your audience probably knows about other cancers besides lymphoma. So we've looked in mast cell tumor cells. We've looked in cells from a cancer called a histiocytic sarcoma because these are other blood cancers that we actually see in dogs all the time. And based on what we see in a Petri dish, it does not look like this drug works very effectively in either of those two other cancer types the way it does in lymphomas and leukemias. Fascinating. We're gonna take a break,
2: and when we come back, I wanna learn a little bit more about Tenovia, but then I wanna actually kind of delve into your backstory and how you got into this, Doug. Sure, happy to. Because I think it's an interesting one. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog.
3: Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. (laughs) No matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life and the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me.
2: So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damien Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects, You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet as well as mind-body medicine. What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold. But if you get it direct from the publisher, you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com and when you check out, use the promo code podcast and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com and use the promo code podcast to save 10%. I wanna let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Welcome back. We are talking about Tanovia. So how much is a course of Tanovia? What, what are the dollars and cents involved in it? How does it compare with CHOP, for example?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a little bit variable depending on each individual clinic and sort of how they choose to sort of price all of their cancer drugs. Mm-hmm. But this is actually something that that was looked at a while ago in you know kind of a little back of the napkin sort of marketing mm-hmm. study that was done And it seems like a course of Tenovia is about the same cost as a course of CHOP. Mm, Okay. So the difference, however, is that with CHOP, the vast majority of the costs are not the drug. They're the cost of the office visit and the blood tests and the pharmacy fee and the administration fee and the disposal fee and all that kind of stuff. The drugs are actually dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. Tenovia is kind of the opposite. So the drug is fairly expensive, but because it's only given five times all those ancillary costs are actually considerably less. Got it. And what are the side effects of tenovia? So some of the side effects are very similar to what we see with a lot of other cancer chemotherapy drugs in dogs, and some of them are a little bit different. So most cancer chemotherapy drugs that we use in in common use in veterinary medicine can cause things like a temporary lowering of the white blood cell count or some temporary Intestinal upset. So loss of appetite, mild vomiting, nausea, mild diarrhea, those sorts of things. So yep, tenovia can do those things, just like most of the other drugs we use can in some dogs. I'd say that the likelihood of seeing a lot of issues with the white blood cells is actually low with tenovia compared to a lot of other drugs. It's probably average in terms of how likely it is to cause intestinal side effects. Mm -hmm. But there are some unusual things that we can see. So one of them is some changes in the skin. So Generally, not after a single treatment, but after two, three, four treatments, we can actually start to see some thinning of the hair coat. We can see some reddening of some of the skin, especially on the neck, in the armpits, in the groin area. And sometimes we can see some ear inflammation as well. And when we were first sort of working with this agent a long, long, long time ago, and we weren't really sure what was going on, we saw some pretty rip roaring dermatitis and some pretty rip-roaring ear changes in some of these dogs. Mm. But now that we've been using this drug for a good long time, you know, we know what to watch for. We know to kind of make some changes early, even if we see very, very, very subtle changes in the skin or in the ears, we'll usually, again, do some things a little bit differently to sort of prevent those from getting worse. So we'll add some symptomatic medications like a little bit of prednisone or antibiotics or topical things that you can put in the ears. And we won't hesitate if the dog's lymphoma is doing well to sort of give him an extra week off Mm. in between treatments just to kind of, you know, let the skin repair itself a little bit more before we keep going. And again, now that we're sort of comfortable with how to manage these things, it's actually very, very rare for us to see, you know, super serious skin or ear changes, changes that are so, so bad that we need to quit. So we're pretty good at being able to do that. And that's just something that comes with experience.
2: Any other side effects? I read something about Westies.
0: Yeah. So the one other thing that we have seen in a a small percentage of patients is what's called pulmonary fibrosis. So that is a scarring that can occur in the lung tissues. And the reason that the Westie thing comes up is that this is actually a condition that some Westies are genetically predisposed to. So Mm. almost like born with it. That's not this situation. This is something that really definitely seems to be associated with the drug. There are other drugs that have been reported to cause this as well. So another lymphoma drug called bleomycin is known to cause pulmonary fibrosis in dogs and people. Radiation, if it shined into the lungs, can cause pulmonary fibrosis. So it's not 100% unique, but this is something that we see in a very small percentage of dogs. So if you look at all the dogs that, that have been treated with this drug, In all the clinical trials that have been done, we're looking at about 800 dogs or so. And the number of dogs or the percentage of dogs that have had some kind of change in their lungs that could have been pulmonary fibrosis is about 4%. So it's 1 in 25. And in about half of those cases, it's been clinically silent. So a little change that they saw on an x-ray or, again, if we did a a postmortem examination on a dog, oh, they saw a little area of lung scarring. So... Two percent, it was meaningless clinically. The other two percent, it was actually fatal. Hmm. So one out of fifty dogs had this delayed pulmonary fibrosis. And again, we're in the process of really trying to sort through all the information that we have about this condition to see if we can't figure out what the risk factors are. Are certain breeds more likely to get it than others? Are pre-treated dogs more likely? Are, you know, dogs from certain parts of the country more likely to get it than others? Like anything we can think of to try and figure out who's going who's gonna to get it and who's not. But at this point, what we can say is it doesn't seem to be dependent on the number of doses that a dog gets. So we've seen some dogs who have experienced this problem who have only received three doses. I know of dogs who have received 15 doses of Tenovia where it's never happened. Hmm. So, it really kind of falls into this category based on what we know so far of what we would call an idiosyncratic adverse effect. So, we don't have any idea who gets it and who doesn't mm-hmm. or why it happens. It's delayed. So, the average amount of time it takes before dogs will show up with it after the time they start treatment is about five months. So, again, a dog is doing great with their treatment. It's usually after their treatment is complete. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple months later is when they might start to show problems related to this scarring again in this very small percentage of dogs so you know obviously as we were going through this whole process we we all knew this was a was a thing and so did the FDA right but at the end of the day really the FDA said well lymphoma is 100% fatal <laughs> or 95% fatal even if it's treated with the standard of care. Mm-hmm. Here's something where there's a 1 in 50 chance of what seems to be a potentially fatal complication. Those seem like pretty favorable odds to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of their logic in as they were sort of looking at this looking at this drug for approval.
2: And then that 5 month period when when it can show up is, you know, when you have a dog with lymphoma 5 months is, you know, to convert to human years, or whatever about three years, two or three years. Oh yeah. So
0: right. I mean, that's a yeah. good long time. And again, were it not for the Tenovia in these dogs that we've treated previously, most of those dogs probably would have passed away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think the I think this is something that everybody needs to know is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But I think for an awful lot of dogs, when it's used correctly, I think the benefits potentially far outweigh the risks.
2: Doug, you are so articulate about this. So let me delve into learning a little bit more about you. Both you and your wife are cancer
0: survivors. That's true. So my wife was uh, treated with surgery for thyroid cancer when she's in college, Mm -hmm. and I'm actually a double cancer survivor. So um, I was treated for lymphoma, of all things, when I was in vet school, Mm -hmm. actually. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that kind of Maybe think about oncology as a career, actually. So I can't say it's one of those things where oh, I'm going to dedicate my life to curing cancer for everybody after my experience. But I hadn't really even sort of thought of oncology as a subspecialty or as a specialty before that. And I started to learn more about it. And I said, wow, this is really cool. And, and, you know, decided that that's sort of how I wanted to spend my career. And actually, about what, four years ago now, I was uh, diagnosed with a, a rare, very, very, very low grade kind of leukemia that actually affects Mm -hmm. the platelets, which are the little cells that float around in your blood and help clot them. So this is a disease called essential thrombocytemia. So it's effectively a leukemia of the platelets. And again, it is so low grade that the average survival time after diagnosis is 31 years. <laughs> Which means, um, you know, chances are I'm going to die from something in else. dog years. That's times seven, that's that's 200 yeah, years, that's 210 yeah. dog years. Yeah. So, highly likely, I'm going to die from something else, but it is something I have to take medication yeah. for and you know, check in with a hematologist every three months and stuff like that.
2: So, how. Did that experience in vet school, it wasn't one of those Brady Bunch episodes where like, I'm now going, to, I owe this. <laughs> right. But what do you think, I mean, without getting too meta, but a little bit, what do you think, to what extent did that influence your decision to go into oncology?
0: Oh, I think it did a lot. And again, it wasn't one of those, you know, I'm going to change my life's work right. kind of thing. But, you know, I have had a pretty good idea that I wanted to specialize in something, even when I was kind of early in vet school. I really liked research, you know. I did a fair bit of kind of unrelated research as an undergrad and things like that. So I thought finding a way to incorporate that into my career would be really cool too. And then, like I said, like sort of prior to this, I hadn't hadn't given any thought to the fact that oncology was even a specialty in veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. So again, it wasn't. It was just the kind of thing that made me think, wow, I wonder if oncology is a thing in veterinary medicine because <laughs> I, I didn't even know. And once I started looking into it, I was like, wow, this, this is really kind of cool. I think this might be a really fun, you know, fun way to and rewarding way to, to sort of spend a career. So I kind of hypothesized that I might have gotten there anyway without the whole lymphoma diagnosis, but it might have taken me a little bit longer before I thought to take a look at oncology, if you know what I mean. I do.
2: Do you think that your own personal experience with cancer and your family has informed the way you talk with clients and patients, dog owners?
0: That's an interesting question. So, you know, actually we spend most of our time when we're talking to clients dispelling a lot of the myths that clients have about what cancer treatment is going to be like in their pet and how it's completely different from how it is in humans, you know, despite the fact that we use the same drugs. So, I guess I say n- no, not really i don't I don't think I usually sort of put my own personal experience into it two months because the experiences are so different. But I mean really interestingly, when it comes not sort of to the nuts and bolts of you know what drugs are we going to give when and all those kinds of things, one of the things that I actually found really surprising is how similar the conversations are that we have with our owners and that human oncologists have with their patients. So the tone, the tenor of the conversation, the kind of points that are hit, et cetera, really are remarkably similar. And that was really surprising to me when I sort of had an opportunity late in my residency to actually spend some time hearing the talks that the human oncologists do. And yeah, I was blown away at at how similar the talks are.
2: When you've met with your own oncologist, do you guys like when they find out, oh, what do you do? I'm I'm a veterinary (laughs) oncologist. How does that conversation go?
0: Oh, yeah. So it's really interesting, actually. So my hematologist and I are members of the same cancer center. Mm-hmm. So we're both members of the University of Colorado Comprehensive Cancer Center. And we're actually both in the same subsection of that, the developmental therapeutics subsection of the of the cancer center. So we're actually colleagues. Huh. And he actually will come over and attend some of our meetings and some of our journal clubs. He organizes a a meeting every year that I go to I mean, it's a really interesting relationship, but when I go in for my quarterly rechecks or whatever they are, we usually spend about five minutes talking about me and then 10 or 15 minutes talking about, you know, what's new? How's your research going? You know, those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a very interesting relationship. That is fascinating.
2: So you you mentioned a few moments ago about you often spend a lot of time with clients talking about the differences and, and debunking some of the myths. Let's go over those things. The, a standard conversation where you kind of tease that apart about the difference between human and dog cancer.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a, a really critical piece of information for owners to have when they're sort of trying to educate themselves and make a decision about how they might want to choose treatment for their pet with cancer. And obviously, as a medical oncologist, most of what I talk about is medical therapy. So here at Colorado State University, actually, we, we have what's called an integrated service. So I work shoulder-to-shoulder with surgical oncologists and radiation oncologists and a very vibrant clinical trials group. So I do feel very comfortable talking about those things as well. But again, as a medical oncologist, mostly I talk about drug therapy. And that's the thing that sort of freaks owners out the most, I think, is this concept of, what? wait, you're going to give my dog chemotherapy? What's that going to be like? You know, my great aunt Harriet had chemotherapy, and she was in and out of the hospital all the time, and she lost all her hair, and she was miserable, and I would never do that to my pet. So again, a lot of the conversation that we have initially is sort of talking about, well, let's back up a second. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. With a a small number of exceptions, and thankfully that number is growing, The drugs that were given to people's pets are people drugs. They're human cancer drugs. And so it would be only logical to to sort of think about some of the side effects that we might have seen friends or family or ourselves have with these drugs. But the way that these drugs are given in veterinary medicine is actually quite different in two very important ways. So one of them is that the doses that we give to dogs and cats are much lower than what even a similarly sized person would get. Mm. And the other big difference is we're very much into usually giving a single drug at a time. You know, occasionally two, usually one. Whereas in humans, it's quite them to pour on two, three, four, five drugs all at the same time. And really with those two changes, so reduced doses and fewer drugs given together, we really try to find a dose of medication that is going to be actually very well tolerated by the majority of our patients. So we can't ever say that the likelihood of seeing an unpleasant side effect is zero. Mm-hmm. If it was, the doses that we were giving would be so low, they probably wouldn't do any good. Mm-hmm. But we really try and make it so that two-thirds of dogs and cats have pretty close to nothing in the way of a, of a side effect from treatment and in the third that does have some kind of side effect it's usually something that's not very bad goes away in a couple of days at home you know just with sort of supportive care we'll generally say that the likelihood of a serious side effect something bad enough to land an animal in the hospital it's about 1 in 20 so one dog out of 20 might just be sort of uniquely sensitive to one particular drug so If you've got a chance, again, let's look at the lymphoma example. you got a 90% chance of having that lymphoma go away and only a 5% chance of a serious side effect. You think those are pretty favorable odds. Mm -hmm. And sort of that's kind of the statistics that we usually tell owners about really to help to, again, allay some of those fears that they might have about, oh, my dog's just going to be sick all the time and it's going to be miserable. I mean, I wouldn't want to do this for a living if all my patients were miserable all the time. And I think we do a really good job of really minimizing the likelihood of a lot of unpleasantness occurring.
2: Now I'll ask you to polish your crystal ball and look into the future. What do you see? What are you excited about?
0: So I guess one of the things that's really sort of almost revolutionized cancer treatment on the human side in the last decade or so is um, what's called immunotherapy. So finding different ways to trick the immune system into recognizing cancer as more foreign than it currently does so obviously all of these cancers in dogs and cats and people have by necessity evolved strategies to avoid getting picked off by the immune system right otherwise they never would have gotten bigger than a speck to begin with because the immune system would have taken care of it so finding ways to kind of reverse that so block those, those pathways that these tumor cells have used to basically be ignored by the immune system to try and sort of make them stand out more has been a really interesting and very powerful means of cancer therapy again in the last 10 years or so for certain kinds of human cancer. So melanoma, kidney cancer, some lung cancers. I mean, there's a long list. And a lot of these strategies kind of have not quite trickled into veterinary medicine yet. So most of the drugs that sort of fall into this category, the ones that seem to be the most promising and are the furthest along on the human side, they're also referred to as immune checkpoint inhibitors. So these drugs, they're not pills. They're not small, what are called small molecules. These are actually antibody-based therapies. And one of the big problems is you can't give these human antibodies to dogs and expect them to work. Hmm. They're very, very human specific. And unfortunately, what happens if you give an antibody like this to a dog is the dog recognizes the therapy as foreign and eliminates it. Oh. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> Which is not the what intended. you want, right? Yeah. So really what's had to happen is people have had to go back and make dog versions of these drugs. So you can't just buy the human version and give it. You got to go back to the drawing board and remake it. And that's actually been a very, very slow and laborious process. But, you know, there are rumblings out there that there may be some drugs that fall into this class available in the not-too-distant future. And if they work as well in at least some dog cancers as they seem to in some human cancers, that would be a real exciting new tool in our toolbox. So is it going to take away the need for a surgery and radiation and chemo? No, of course it's not. But again, I think it really is going to potentially find a real interesting place in uh, sort of our arsenal of, of different treatments that we can reach for, at least for certain kinds of cancer. So that could be very exciting.
2: Well, I, That is really interesting. So, uh, Dr. Doug Tham, when that happens, will you come back and share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. That is awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciated it. Thanks so much. Uh, We will uh, post connections, ways to get in touch with you in the show notes, but do you want to share something here on the podcast?
0: Sure. Please check out csuanimalcancercenter.org. So um, that's actually the link that will take you directly to all the information about the Flint Animal Cancer Center here at Colorado State University. And there's actually a wealth of information for owners, for veterinarians for everyone who's interested in learning more about animal cancer.
2: Dr. Doug Tham, thank you so
0: much. My pleasure, good to talk to you.
2: And I wanna thank you for tuning in and hitting that play button today. I think Dr. Tham is quite articulate and we will have him back on a future episode of Dog Cancer Answers. We have an entire back catalog of shows. If you haven't heard any, you should check out our website at dogcanceranswers.com. And also, if you don't mind, you enjoyed today's show, please tell a friend about Dog Cancer Answers. It can really help a dog lover who is going through the process of treating their dog with cancer. Well, that is it for today's show. On behalf of everyone here at Dog Podcast Network, I'm James Jacobson wishing you and your dog a very warm aloha. Thank
1: you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcanceranswers.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network.
2: Does the act of taking paper to pen and writing help to heal a broken heart after your dog dies? Sheila Cooperman says yes. Yes. She joins us on Dog Cancer Answers to tell her true tale about Tucker, her dog who died last year from lymphoma. Sheila shares how writing about him is helping her heal not only from his loss, but from other heartbreaks as well. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and at dogcancer.com podcast.